the difference between panic attacks and anxiety attacks is that it's panic attacks are more physical sensations and also there's no consistent triggers and so when things arise there it there's no exact reason why a lot of the times it's more situational whereas anxiety attacks are more prolonged sometimes the person doesn't know that they're experiencing them and uh, there could be some physical sensations but a lot of it can also be emotional and mental and so for me experiencing a lot of physical pain through panic attacks um, i needed escape mechanisms Hey friends, welcome back to Normalize a Conversation. Today I'm here with Ray Abray. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, how's it going? How are you? Well, it's been a very interesting week. I just uh, ended the season for Pulse Connection and now I'm getting back into you know, balancing my mental space and mentally preparing for a lot of things to come. So yeah, it's been it's been a more like less stressful week. <laughs> I love that. We all need a rest, especially when you have so much going on. So can mm-hmm. you tell me about Pulse Connection? Yes, yes, I can. <laughs> uh, Pulse Connection is my little baby, I guess you could say, my passion project. Um, it kind of stemmed because of two interests that I've had for a very long time. Um, to begin with, I am Filipino. And um, I would, I'm also third generation. So I was raised not really to, um, not aware of my culture and heritage growing up. And then also I went to non-diverse grade schools up until I was maybe 15, 16. And so I was constantly not surrounded by fellow Filipinos or even fellow Asians. And so I became very curious about my heritage. I wanted to know a lot more about it. And it led me to taking Tagalog classes, uh, which is the native language of the Philippines, uh, although there's thousands of other language. And then also in college, joining Filipino-American organizations. And um, um, as that developed, um, me being curious about my heritage and being in organizations, I realized how much being a Filipino in America um, influences how we identify and define ourselves. And so... Uh, I became more aware of political issues and um, how that overlapped with, you know, defining and like learning about um, what it means to be here in this land. And, um, and between all of that too, I also picked up a, um, a passion for dancing. And so I've been doing that for almost a decade now, which is a really weird thing to say, because <laughs> I, I don't dance very often it's been like an off and on thing for like the last decade. So I feel like that timeline doesn't really reflect um, my experience. But um, uh, I, with uh, COVID happening over this past year, um, there was a huge rise in hate incidents against Asians, Asian American Pacific Islanders. And that ultimately just led me to wanting to do something about it. Uh, there have been so many organizations that popped up at the beginning of COVID, at the beginning of 2020. And um, at the time, I was living in LA by myself and my friend groups were, um, I was the only Asian in my friend group in short. And uh, it came to a point where I was just constantly 
you know, afraid to talk to people about this stuff. Like, hey, I'm not afraid to go outside because I feel like I'm going to get a deadly disease. I'm afraid to go outside because, hey, incidents are happening and I'm nervous that I'm going to be the next one. And um, that was happening. Didn't know what to do that in with that information. And so when um, social media started being more public about it um, at the beginning of 2021, I decided that I, okay, I really need to do something about it because it's coming to a point where the Asian community is switching from a more conservative to a more like loud and liberal um, space in the movement. And so I, I began to be more vocal about it again after being distant from Filipino American organizations for like the past three years. And it ultimately led me to the launch of Pulse Connection which is not exactly an official entity or a business or organization just yet. Um, it, it was just supposed to be a thing that I did on Zoom for like a month and then that was supposed to be the end of it and then it branched into something more. But essentially what I wanted to do was just host some um, dance workshops on Zoom, just like teach a couple pieces like beginner level online and any proceeds that came in, uh, I would I would donate it to a nonprofit responding to these social justice issues at a localized level. And uh, workshop one came up in April. Um, I launched the, the movement, I think on like April 4th this year. And then a week later, I taught the first class over Zoom and raised $185 for Hip Hop for Change, uh, which is a um, organization in the Bay Area that uses grassroots efforts to uh, create jobs, to teach youth how to use music to respond to social change and so many other initiatives, um, they, they do a lot and they're very public and like on the streets as well. And um, after that happened, I got sick um, and it wasn't like COVID sick or like flu sick, it was like mental health sick. Um, I literally like called out of work for like a whole week and that's when it hit me. I'm like, okay, I wanna do something about it, but clearly like this is called this, um, stress in the community and also stress in my own personal life is hitting back to back and so I need to take a break and so after like that workshop happened I was very like excited about it because a lot of opportunities popped up but, but I realized that hey I need to focus on my mental health and come back to it and so um, I took a break and instead of like doing workshops every week I started doing workshops once a month and so when May came around um, uh, in light of Asian American Pacific Islander and Mental Health Awareness Month, we sponsor NAPIMHA, which is the National Asian American Pacific Islander Mental Health Association, a huge mouthful, huge mouthful. But uh, they work on a lot of preventative trainings and um, offer types of like workshops to help people learn coping mechanisms for themselves and also for other people. So when mental health issues or like conversations arise, they know how to respond to it and direct people to the right resources. And that is like a whole thing of um, going back to breaking the stigma because it reminds uh, people, especially at this age where uh, we're not familiar with mental health until we're forced into it, that uh, going to therapy is a normal thing. Like it, it's preventative. Like much like uh, I, I talked to the program director, JR, on a like a podcast, which was shared with our, our donators that month. And one of his things was, was uh, or one of his points was 
you know, I go to the doctor every year, not because I'm sick, it's for a checkup. And so it's the same like concept with therapy. And I felt that was very comforting to hear because I began being a consistent um, mental health consumer back in March. And so I was, you know, while, while going through all Pulse Connection, I was still trying to figure, I'm still to this day, trying to figure out, you know, where, you know, how to cope with, you know, my own things. And so, um, yeah, so we sponsored Napima in May. And then this month, uh, we sponsored Stop API Hate, which is an organization also in the Bay Area, like Hip Hop for Change. But they uh, collect data for hate incidents across the United States and um, combine them to show to organizations and um, government levels that, hey, this is happening and there, there needs to be something done about it. And so they take a lot of the evidence and they create um, these logistical like forms and like all these things to bring out to politicians, bring out to the public, like, hey, this is happening and we can create legislation about it. Um, and I also just found out the other day that the high schoolers of um, in that organization, they did create a legislation that they're working on and on getting approved. And I think that's like absolutely amazing because like, like, man, I didn't know what I wanted to do before I was 18. Um, so yeah, at the end of the day, um, Pulse Connection was just originally a way for me to want like figure out how to overlap creativity into the social justice world. Because I feel like that that that's something that was missing from the dance community for such a long time. Uh, because there's a lot of issues within the dance community itself that are still being addressed. And it's not helpful that, um, maybe that's not the right way to say it, but in short that, that there's all these social justice issues that have popped up since COVID started. And, you know, they're essentially intersectional. And there's ways that we can use dance, our talents and our creativity, much like any other talent, just music or painting or anything like that to bring awareness to these causes and amplify them. And so I just wanted to like be one of those, um, I guess, organizers that can create a space for those people and teach them how to do that. And so what initially was just an idea and I just told my cousin, I was like, hey, I kind of want to do this. And she was like, you should. And I was like, okay, I will. And then I did. Um, it's now becoming a lot bigger than I was anticipating. And um, I'm not sure exactly where it's going, but I'm hoping to make an announcement about it soon because there definitely are projects happening behind the scenes, even though our season just ended. First of all, wow. In the you started this this year. Yes, so in April. from April to now, you have done so much. And not only have you taken dance as another form of expression, because we can express ourselves in many different ways, especially with mental health and healing through movement. But you've also bring awareness to all these different amazing organizations out there who are doing great work that aren't being amplified and raising money for them on top of that. And that is absolutely incredible. And I want to go back to a point in the beginning that you made. You were talking about you wanted to learn more about yourself and your heritage. And I think a lot of people go through that, but they don't know where to start. So how did you kind of figure that out? Well, I think first things first, I ask my parents a lot of questions. Um, my parents were our second generation, so that means that um, I actually have one parent that was born in the Philippines and then immigrated here at a very young age. And then my other 
parent was uh, born here in the States and spent part of his childhood in the Philippines, but ultimately grew up here. And what that means for me is that I was raised in a household that does not follow a lot of the Filipino stereotypes. I was also not taught any of our native languages because um, my family, where our regions are um, Busan and then also the Ilocanos. So we speak Tagalog and Ilocanos um, on both sides of the family. And I was not taught either of those. And so um, I essentially had to ask my parents about their experiences, if they remember anything in the Philippines, if they know anything about our family and um, even my grandparents too. But by the time that I was like at that curious age, my grandparents were beginning to forget a lot of things about back home. And so um, after I you know, had that chance to spend time with my family and get to know like you know, directly about my heritage, I started leaning on the community more and education more. And so I was very fortunate that in my high school experience, I went to a predominantly Filipino school. And because language was a requirement in high school, uh, we actually had Tagalog as one of our options. And so I took Tagalog for four years in high school, although I did not retain any of the information because I didn't have anybody to practice it with. Um, I did learn a lot about the homeland, about like national holidays and food and just, you know, like practices that are normal there that we, we don't do here in the States. And, um, and then going into college, I, started joining organizations and that just continued on my curiosity because uh, by then um, I wasn't just learning about familial upbringing or you know more formal educational level stuff that I was uh, meeting people who identified with my story as far as not feeling like they could fit in their communities because they were either too Filipino or not Filipino enough. And so uh, I was constantly surrounding myself with people by then that I feel like I could relate to and truly connect with because that was the best way for me to figure out how to ask questions, what organizations to go to to learn more about my heritage. And yeah, like, I mean, I even remember because I was making so many friends at one point that were um, like a, maybe a generation at least older than me and uh, I would always ask them, hey, like, do you have any books about the farm workers movement or about an island in the Philippines? Or maybe, maybe it could be something as simple as folk tales. And I started, you know, finding all these little nooks and crannies around California and like collecting books. Uh, because that's also not a very easy thing to find, like books published by Filipinos in the States. And uh, yeah, I just kept surrounding myself with information and people until I felt like I can I can learn something and comfortably uh, like identify and tell other people, yeah, I'm Filipino. So when you were first kind of getting that curiosity and trying to figure out who you were and more about your heritage and where you fit in with that in your identity. And you couldn't find people in the beginning and you were struggling to find a community that you really belonged in. How did that affect your mental health? Okay. 
me think about this one for a second. I feel like it's always difficult to be in a space where you feel like you're alone, right? And I was just kind of talking about this a little bit yesterday because uh, I just held a discussion on solidarity and transformative action yesterday. And it wasn't until recently that I realized how much uh, being or growing up in a non-diverse school affected who I was. Um, for example, when I was in elementary, I went to a predominantly white school and then middle school, a predominantly black school. And so uh, by, by the time I met other Asians in high school, I did not act. I didn't know who to be and like, you know, what it meant to have other friends who shared stories, you know? And um, I, think, I think it wasn't until I was a lot older that I realized I was being bullied for my race because I was a very ignorant, shy child and very innocent and so if people thought something was funny I thought it was funny too but I didn't know that the joke was about me right if that makes sense and so I remember uh because I, I feel like my mind has this constant pattern of hiding traumas and I don't remember them until I start talking or being around community again that uh, I remember that I experienced a lot of bullying uh, related to racism and I didn't realize that until I was almost in high school and I was maybe 16 at the time and I told my mom about a story about a girl and um, we all knew my mom already knew that like she was mean and all that stuff and when it hit me like halfway through the story that I was being bullied I cried that day and this was what maybe seven or eight years later, and and even though I cried, it was kind of like a relief. Like I recognized that hey, like this happened, and I feel fortunate that I was ignorant enough to not have it affect me at that age. Because now being at a conscious level where talking about mental health is more. I guess accessible. It's it's easy to vocalize it and ask people for help. That's a really really powerful story because I think a lot of people go through that where they're bullied without knowing it, and then later on, as they're really coming into their identity and figuring out who they are, they realize how many people made fun of them, and that really suppressed who they were for so long. And that you've been able to grow through it and heal through it. And now you've created this amazing movement to be able to help other people heal through it, especially through movement, which I think a lot of people don't realize how powerful movement can be, especially when it comes to healing. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I also feel like in general, I'm still learning how to talk about my experiences with mental health. Because um, in Asian households, and I cannot speak for all, but I know for sure in my household, that talking about mental health is not a normalized thing. Um, we are 
as, as I guess within my family specifically, uh, we are meant that our only goal is to achieve high grades, to be successful, to get a career, and you know, in that linear pattern. And if for some reason you fall out of that pattern, you are failing. And so getting anything lower than an A is not acceptable or you know, doing anything other than school is not acceptable. And I, I didn't realize how much that was affecting me until recently uh, because I was, I, I guess in short, like I, I didn't really know how to deal with anything other or outside of my academic and professional life. And so like, honestly, this podcast is probably gonna be the first time I've ever shared my story with anybody. Um, but essentially, um, I would say that I've been consistently a mental health consumer for about two years now. And um, I have been more exploring uh, my mental health um, for about two and a half years. And so my second the last year into college, I actually transferred from a San Diego university to an LA-based university. And a lot of things were situational. You know, transitions are not easy ever. And this was my first time, one, living outside of my home um, and also being in a new city. And so I was basically just like, not, I'm exaggerating, but drop kicked into another city. And <laughs> it. I didn't know how to handle it because I, um, even though I was living with family at first, um, I was in an environment that did not allow me to, um, you know, be my best academically. Um, I wasn't in a space where I could make friends easily. Um, I was under a lot of financial pressure because I knew I had to graduate within two years or else uh, my parents wouldn't be able to afford it anymore. Um, I was also going through a lot of relationship issues because before that transfer, um, my boyfriend at the time and I, uh, we became long distance and um, I was undergoing so much stress in that first semester that I almost dropped out of college. And um, it actually, and I didn't even realize this was happening until like the following spring semester, but I started experiencing panic attacks and I didn't know what they were at first. And so if you can imagine me just experiencing like tightness of breath or rapid heartbeats, tenseness um, in the body, losing sense of reality, uh, spacing out, and you know not knowing what it was, and then trying to ask somebody for help. And I remember, like during finals week of that first semester, I just tapped my friend on the shoulder because we were all talking about the final. And all I said was, I can't breathe. I feel like I can't breathe. And they thought that I was talking about stressing out about the Zoom. And I was like, no, you don't understand. I can't breathe. And all I had to do was walk out of the room because I didn't know what I was feeling. I didn't know what was going on. And I didn't know how to ask for help. And I don't recall how consistent those started happening. But um, the following spring semester, I actually took a nonverbal communication class. And essentially that class was required, <laughs> but it, it was about uh, how to communicate beyond words. 
And so facial expressions, body movements, um, something as, you know, crazy as maybe, I, I mean, I, I mean, okay, I guess that's what nonverbal communication is in, in short, there's a lot more to it. Uh, but the instructor of that class was a dance therapist. And because I was experiencing all these uh, panic attacks, uh, which I, again, I didn't know what it was at the time. And I was learning about dance therapy as a dancer. I went to her office hours and I asked her, I told her about my symptoms, what I was feeling and not knowing what to do about it. And I asked her if dance therapy would have been beneficial for me. And we talked about it for a really long time. Like we even got really nitpicky about my insurance and how that would work. It was my health insurance was really complicated at the time because I was still a dependent. And so like, I only had access to hospitals in San Diego because anywhere else in the world, I would have to pay for it. And that was out of the picture because I was paying for tuition. And so uh, I basically um, like lash, not lashed out, um, but vented out to her. And she gave me a lot of recommendations on dance therapists. And then she actually literally walked me from her office to the counseling office on campus that day to make an appointment. And uh, that was a game changer for me because I felt seen for the first time. Um, at the time, I only knew one other person that was experiencing anxiety, maybe two. And um, that friend, I would talk to him a lot and he would um, affirm me and tell me that my experiences were valid, but because he was going through his own things, I did not rely on him to give me coping mechanisms. And so her walking me to the office that day was just, I felt saved for the first time and that there was, it was possible that something could change. And yeah, so like within maybe two or three weeks later, I go to the appointment and I talk to them about all these things and they give me a couple of resources. Um, one of them was a workbook on escape mechanisms for panic attacks, uh, where essentially if, um, um, basically the difference between panic attacks and anxiety attacks is that it's, Panic attacks are more physical sensations and also there's no consistent triggers. And so when things arise, it, there's no exact reason why. A lot of the times it's more situational, whereas anxiety attacks are more prolonged. Sometimes the person doesn't know that they're experiencing them and uh, there could be some physical sensations, but a lot of it can also be emotional and mental. And so for me, experiencing a lot of physical pain through panic attacks, um, I needed escape mechanisms or else I would feel pain for hours. And um, this workbook, which I actually um, ended up taking notes on my own like paper and then giving it to somebody else that needed it. Um, so I can't reference it anymore, but um, it was rationalizing uh, your your situations in that moment and trying to bring yourself back into reality so you can um, essentially learn how to alter your thoughts so you can like leave and be more aware of your environment because I think what's scary about panic attacks is that they can literally happen anywhere 
you can be at home, which would be really nice if you're home because then you know that you can't harm yourself. But it can also happen when you're driving, when you're at a party, when you're around other people. And that's when it gets kind of scary, especially when there's people around you that can't help you or aren't aware that this is a thing or more dangerously that, you know, if you're utilizing like chugging machines that you might hurt yourself. Um, so that was one of the resources. And then also I received something called a feelings wheel, which I have a copy of it. I always like print it out and like put it in my planners every year. But um, I thought this was really important for me too because I have trouble communicating my needs with other people. And so um, being able to define what I was feeling in a very, very specific level is very beneficial for me. And so I was given this wheel, this was like three years ago. And in the center of it, it has six different emotions that are very general. It says fear, anger, disgust, sad, happy, or surprise. And then within the inner circle, there's like more specific um, emotions. And then as you move outward, it's very, very specific. It doesn't cover every single emotion. And there's actually other wheels that are more, um, I guess, um, specific and more um, have more options. Uh, but I think it was really helpful because um, before when I, I didn't know how to communicate, I would create like sentence structures out of it. It was like, I am feeling this because this, so this is what I'm going to do about it. And now I just kind of look at it every once in a while and be like, okay, I feel sad, but why do I feel sad? And then I, if I can, you know, go in specifically and be like, okay, I'm sad, but actually um, I might be, I might be feeling ignored. So maybe that's why I'm sad. And so it's, it's kind of like that. Um, and so after that appointment happened, um, unfortunately, because my insurance was very complicated and I was also nervous that if I were to pick up therapy at the time because I was a dependent, that my parents would ask me about it, I chose not to do therapy. Um, but I did ask my friends and family for help who I do know were or had experienced um, forms of anxiety in the past or clinically diagnosed and like ask them what they do. And I, it was enough to get me through um, now, almost three years later. Why I picked up therapy now is initially because I am one to pick up a lot of work and overemphasize over productivity because that's what I was taught at a young age. And in turn, um, it helps me or keeps me from seeing the value in taking a break or in saying no or in even how I speak to myself because I might be using more negative vocabulary like such as better or worse which can change the way that I I feel or approach situations and so I started going to therapy initially at the beginning of the year because I thought it was workshop and little did I know it's a lot <laughs> and um yeah I just think it's crazy because you know I recognize that me being able to go to therapy every other week is a privilege and I feel like that is that's just not fair <laughs> to even say that because you know if mental health care was more accessible to me three years ago like I may not have gotten to a point where I was feeling progressive pain or even you know 
being really destructive in my coping mechanisms uh, you know, when I was going through panic attacks or like being under a lot of high pressure and stress. Because you know, I will say that um, I know 2020 was a hard year for a lot of people, but like from the end of 2019 going into 2020, like I was definitely at my lowest low. Um, I was abusing drugs, I was abusing alcohol, I was borderline addicted to sex, and I didn't realize that I was using these things as coping mechanisms because I was not under anything, um, like any help, like I didn't have any help and I didn't know how to ask for help either. And so when new stressful situations arose, whether it was like school or um, through friends, because I had a very unstable friend group, um, just in general, not like mental health, um, that, you know, I didn't know where to turn to because I was, the, the environment that I was surrounded by encouraged me to do stuff like this. And although I also found it ironic because there was also people that I knew that were also doing this, but then they also went to therapy. And so I didn't know where the boundary was for myself. And so I just feel like if mental health care was more accessible, maybe I would have been able to communicate my needs better and not be so destructive to myself. So I definitely feel like there's some things that I am forgetting, but um, I guess that is a introduction to what I've been going through. Your mental health journey has been a really long journey of not knowing how to advocate for yourself or what to feel or where to start. And I think a lot of people go through that, especially in the beginning when anxiety attacks and panic attacks start to develop and no one has explained to you what that is. It kind of is a big joke when you're growing up, like I'm going to have a panic attack or I'm going to have an anxiety attack. So when those start to happen, you don't realize that this is real. This is a real thing and it can be so debilitating. And as you're trying to navigate that and then trying to find therapy or counseling or some kind of treatment that's accessible is so difficult. And especially for college students, a lot of college students can't afford to go off campus for therapy or for counseling. And a lot of school counseling doesn't have availability or enough availability. They might tell you, you can see us once a month for appointments and that's it. And that doesn't help, especially in the moment when it takes another month before you can get that first appointment. So I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to is feeling so at a loss, just simply at a loss because you don't know what you're going through. You don't know really how to advocate for yourself and put into words and the people you really need to help you figure that out aren't always accessible. It seems that you've done so much work since that point to figure out who you are and how to heal from it, especially with that emotions wheel. I love that so much because understanding your emotional language is a key part of your mental health. Yeah, I also want to add on to that, especially with college and high school counseling, they can't offer everything to you. I remember even though I was like super grateful to be able to do that counseling appointment on campus, um, their method was, hey, like, you know, they tell you straight off the bat that we cannot 
help you all the way through. We can like give you to like through a couple sessions and let you see our psychiatrist on site. But other than that, our ultimate goal is to refer you to more professional people. And that is so limiting as a college student when we're paying thousands of thousands of dollars to be there. And like, I don't know how most colleges are, but the ones in California at least require you to pay for health insurance on campus too. And so that's a little unsettling to be like, hey, I can't help you. And then it's just like, okay, then what am I paying for? You know, I know I'm here for my education, but this campus is supposed to be very inclusive and offer me resources if I need them, not just academic related, but also, you know, cultural support. Maybe if you are like part of the LGBTQI community, so like support for that too. If you're part of BIPOC, support for that too. You know, like it's not just to graduate and go into our careers, it's to make sure that we're leaving as a well-rounded person. And if we are only tending to our physical health and our mental health, then who are you when you leave, you know? And so like, I remember after leaving that counseling appointment and then going to psychiatry, I felt, I, I felt like I was, I wasn't seen at all. Um, I went to that psychiatry and we spent the first half hour of that conversation talking about campus because this guy was like, I never get to do anything outside of this office. Tell me something that I probably don't know about campus. And we talked about that for half an hour. And this appointment was only supposed to be one hour. And it ended up being almost three to a point where I actually like missed a meeting with my mentor that day for because I was part of an undergraduate research program. And um, after this two hour long conversation, um, talking to the psychiatrist about my childhood experiences, my most recent experiences and all this stuff, he looked at me dead in the face and he said, you sound fine to me. Wow. And I was like, okay, what am I supposed to do with that information? Why did we talk for two hours if you recognize that I was fine when I first walked in? And he said, well, you haven't experienced a lot of childhood trauma. It seems like your recent attacks are situational and there's no long-term thing. So essentially it sounded like, which makes sense because psychiatry's point is to give you medications, that he was specifically looking for a reason to give me medication or refer me to another psychiatrist that can do that. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that, that that was the thing because that discouraged me for looking for help after that for a long time too. Um, you know, like I already knew that dance therapy would have been completely out of pocket and like not covered by my insurance. So I didn't explore that. Um, and, I, you know, all of my help was leaning on to talking to my friends because at the time I had a lot of other things going on for me that were really exciting. Um, I was like part of the dance community. I was like interning. I was like doing undergraduate research. I was doing a lot of community nonprofit work and that was fulfilling. And it was building my resume. It was building me as a person, um, but it was also distracting me from what um, you know I really should have been investing in, which was myself. And I think what it is, is when I'm around other people, I feel like I'm investing in myself because it has an immediate fulfilling um, reward versus working on your mental health. It takes a lot of time. And, you know, what is it? 
the 20, 19, 20 year old me was not patient. So I didn't want to try. I didn't, I didn't want to look into it. And so I was, you know, I would continue on experiencing panic attacks. Still am learning how to, you know, cope with it. But, um, you know, it, it comes to a point sometimes where, especially when you don't have professional help, that I felt like I was compromising my friends' time and energy if I was going through something. I remember after going through a breakup last year, I, um, I mean, I'm sure there might have been other reasons because a lot of things happened last summer, but um, I had a panic attack in the middle of the night. And um, even though I had experienced physical sensations and pain before, like this one was the most dramatic and like the most extreme out of all the others, I um, had trouble breathing and I had chest pains for just, I don't know how long it was lasting. And I realized um, that when it wasn't going away that I needed to do something about it but I didn't know what it was because I had to, like that was my first time experiencing that pain. And I, my mind was, in, was so frantic that I was trying to look online to see if there was anything I can do to help myself. And the only thing I found was just stretching out my chest. And when that wasn't helping, um, I was like, okay, I don't know what else to do. And so I literally texted everyone that I felt comfortable and like was already aware of what was happening. Be like, hey, I am in pain can you hop on a call with me and distract me? And, um, you know, my, my friends are very vocal about their boundaries. Um, and they know that when I need something that they need to be present for me. And so I was very thankful that, that um, some friends were like, I know you need help, but I cannot be present for you right now. And so I was very grateful for that. Um, but luckily I was able to find somebody to hop on a call with me. And this was two o'clock in the morning, my time. I'm in Pacific Standard Time. And so that means it was probably about 4 a.m. for them, maybe five. And I just left my call and I was like, hey, I am experiencing a lot of pain. Um, and she asked me about my pain, walked me through it. And, you know, I was like, yeah, this is what I'm feeling. She was like, okay, how can I help you? I was like, I want you to talk about anything about your day, about anything like good happening, about your pet, about your pets, about husband just like anything that has nothing to do with me and I just want my mind to be in a different place until this pain goes away and that conversation lasted for two hours and by the end of that I felt comfortable to tell her hey I don't feel anything anymore and thank you for staying on the phone with me and so Luckily, we both had very crappy sleep schedules <laughs> during this time. And so it wasn't too much of a burden to ask that of her. Um, but, you know, me not having consistent professional help, like I, I am still learning how to ask for help without having that burden feeling myself for doing that. It's so amazing that you were able to find a support system when you needed it, especially when the counseling and the psychiatry didn't go well. And it kind of isolates you when they tell you, like, we can't help you. But to find friends and loved ones who can be there during that critical time and let you know you're not alone 
is something that's so, so powerful and so important because when people are struggling, they tend to truly feel alone. And when you feel alone, you begin to feel hopeless. I can absolutely second that because I remember early on too, um, jumping backwards into the timeline until like right after the counseling session, I remember telling some of my closest family members and friends about it. And uh, there's a lot of people within our friend group that are clinically diagnosed with anxiety or depression or bipolar disorder. And because I was not clinically diagnosed, um, I was, um, I guess, self-diagnosing or at least speculating that this is what I might have and I'm, I'm looking for help to figure it out. This is essentially what I was communicating. Um, but because like those, you know, those friends existed too, I initially was shut down. Well, you don't have anxiety, you think you have anxiety because that's what social media tells you because of your symptoms. That's what the internet tells you because of your symptoms. And that was hard because I, you know, was raised in a family where talking about mental health wasn't a thing. Um, and not that like it didn't exist, but it's just like, it wasn't okay to talk about it in the house for no, un, like for un, some unspoken reason. And so again, hearing that, and then also going through psychiatry, I just felt really closed off. And, you know, I just felt like the best thing for me to do was stay in LA where I had a studio apartment by myself and, and deal with it. Because I felt like if I just kept talking to more people about what I was going through, I was going to feel alienated. And already, um, in LA, I kind of felt that way because I didn't have a strong social group in college, um, specifically in LA, not in San Diego. <laughs> um, and that was my choice because by then I didn't want to be in organizations anymore. I didn't want to do anything more than like research and going to classes. I just wanted to finish my degree and leave. Um, I was very lucky to still walk away with two really close friends from college at, um, in LA, but other than that, like I didn't have any friends. Um, and, and I knew it like probably would have been better if I like had more people on campus, but by then I just felt like I had seen too much of the world that people like in a college campus could not see me for, you know, what it was. That, that their only, the only thing we could talk about was what was happening at school. And so um, I started leaning on the community again and building those support systems elsewhere um, because LA is a very um, public platform industry type of city. I made friends with a lot of people who are on YouTube channels and are very interested in social media. And so I was making a lot of friends that way. And that's when I started recognizing that like, hey, mental health exists. Um, I may not be clinically diagnosed, but this is still my experience and it's valid. And there are people out there that talk about this at a normalized level, like sports. And that was empowering because it felt like I could do something about it, that I could find help for myself. And 
you know, that it was okay if I was invited to something and returned by saying, hey, I don't have the capacity today to go out. And people understood. That was a huge mind-blowing environment change to just be around that energy. And um, I was just very thankful that I had a friend group that cared about me that much. And, you know, were, were willing to watch over me when anything happened. Um, the, especially when I am going through an attack, because when I started spending a lot more time with people and less by myself, I was definitely having more panic attacks around other friends. And um, if I tense up, physical touch is one of the easiest ways to get me out of it. And um, a lot of my friends, like they would either hold my arms and like slowly pull arms with my body or um, let me lean on them until it ended or, you know, just wrap me in a blanket and sit with me until it was over. And like those, those types of things were very helpful, especially when it was like some crazy thing where we were at a party and there's like a hundred people or, you know, we're under a lot of high pressure because we have an event in like three days and we're sitting in front of like 10,000 pieces of logistics right now and all these things. So it was very nice to feel heard by my friend, my friend work group whatever <laughs> and you know like because I think up until living in LA I um I think I was still able to communicate you know like I don't have the capacity today to do it but it wasn't as normal like it didn't feel comfortable to do that it just felt like I was making it like an excuse to not show up yeah it sounds like you've come a really long way throughout your journey and finding that right support group and those friends who can really see you and validate what you're going through and just be there for you. Thank you so much, Ray, for joining me today and for all the amazing work you're doing with Pulse Connection. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah.